Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Today I have a most special guest because I'm a great fan of the composer and the writer, Jan Swafford. Jan, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, this goes true for your compositions and also your writing, and your writing of uh, not only pieces that introduce people to music, but also for me, the things that I love as a musician and as a writer myself is the wonderful biography, biographical talent you've got. Because we're going to talk about why I believe you're the finest writer of musical biographies I have ever read. And I've read most of the great ones. You write in Thank your you. most... Well, it's true. You write in I, your most... Yeah. I've always said that most to, people who write musical biographies are either musicians who don't write very well, or they're, not, or they're writers who don't know that much about music. And I don't claim to be a great writer, but I claim to be a very good writer for a musician. And I, I like to think that that's my edge. And I'm also a composer, and nobody has tried to write, who's written as much music as I have, has tried to write biographies of composers. That's quite true. I don't know of anybody else. And I've read a lot of biographies over the years. We're not going to include my Leben by Richard Wagner, which is a horrible book. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great question as to how good a writer Wagner was, if you oh, call, okay. call being lucid being a good writer. <laughs> I want to read something from your latest book, which I am in the just finishing up the Marriage of Figaro section. And I've got about 40% left of the 700-page biography, which is flowing beautifully as I read it. Jan, your, your style of writing is so musical. In the words you choose, you've got the ear, and it comes through in the music. But I want to read this, which I sent to my students to look at. And I've been doing it, by the way. I've sent them three emails with sections from Jan Swafford's Mozart, The Reign of Love. Let me just read this. It's reasonably clear how words create meaning, character, situation. But how does music amplify those things? In speaking, we articulate feelings partly by what we say and partly by how we say it. There's an interaction between those two things, the what and the how of words, and sometimes a deliberate contradiction. Take the word fine. It can be said in a business-like way. Fine. I'm getting that. Somewhere between casual and involved. Fine. Showing simple approval. It can be snapped out abruptly, meaning approval as if in passing. Fine. Not important. Or it can be pronounced warmly or enthusiastically conveying an involvement by the speaker. That is fine. The word can be stretched out with an upward inflection. Fine. Meaning all very nice. But it can be said with a smile or a chuckle as an ironic quasi-approval. It can be barked angrily. Fine. By which is meant the opposite of approval. Nothing is fine. And you are in it. You're in for it. Each of these implications can have myriad shapes. In an opera, the music provides the implications and the shades, implies mood and movement for every movement, moment of the text. It is his job of the singers. So, Jan Swafford, author of Mozart, The Reign of Love, written by a composer for this composer who loves this book. What were you thinking when you wrote that? 
I was thinking about the word fine to start with, but I was also thinking about just how meticulously a good opera composer, and Mozart is the best opera composer, expresses words. And his ability to express every moment of the text. And he does it differently than Beethoven. Beethoven will tend to pull out a single word and, right. and go after that. Mozart is expressing the general feel of the of the of the emotion of the text and the rhythm and everything. And his ability to do that in, in logical and coherent musical forms at the same time is just incomparable. That's what is unique to him. Whereas Wagner is expressing the words minutely and beautifully, but it, it's within this kind of mush in a way. <laughs> That there's a feeling it could sort of go anywhere anytime. And, they call and, and it miasma, M-I-A-S-M-A. The Wagnerian miasma, <laughs> that's a good term. Whereas Mozart is still thinking classically and in, in, in concise formal musical patterns, yeah. which nonetheless, he manages to turn emotion into musical form, in effect. And that's, that's just a, 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 a unique to him. No, it's breathtaking. To add to my study of your section about Le Noce de Figaro, the marriage of Figaro, with the libretto by Lorenzo da Ponte, and I love the way you described da Ponte too, which is perfect. I watched the uh, Ponel video of Le Noce de Figaro with Herman Pry and Fischer Discau and Mirella Freni. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that from many years ago. Wonderful. Yeah. And, of course, Kiri Takanawa. So... Let's talk about Leinosa de Figaro, which he wrote when he was about 29, 30 years old. Quickly, from what I can tell. Uh, Relatively the quickly. Old, the old story that he wrote in about six weeks is not true, and it I don't really be. remember, but it was not... It was, it was medium fast for him, I yeah. guess. But, you know, he's perfectly capable of writing an opera in six weeks. He, <laughs> he probably wrote... Um, uh, Titus, the, mer uh, the clemency of Titus, in about that amount of time. But it, well, it shows. <laughs> I think <laughs> it does. If I may, there is, as you will know, as a composer, as I noticed, there are lots of corners cut in that in that piece. Oh yeah. Um, I just don't feel but, anything from the characters in that piece at all. But I, <sighs> but you know, in notes, I, my God, every note. Well, yeah, he, by that point, he was in his later in his life, he was almost not capable of writing anything that wasn't marvelous. Even a little piece like Eine kleine Nachtmusik, which is a, a throwaway, and it's, it's immortal, it's fabulous. It's not profound, but it's just fabulous. Now, let's talk, if we may, about a word that you use a lot in the book, where you talk about the fact that this guy not only was the could operate in symphony and opera equally fine. Like nobody else ever like has. no one else has ever done. Certainly Beethoven didn't. No. So, you mentioned the word tunes and melody. Talk to us. Well, why yeah. are the tunes and melody... I mean, it's, you know, in Amadeus they show it also, the difference between Salieri and Mozart, but... What is the reason that this guy behind us has tunes that just stick to us? Well, you and I grew up in an academic, were educated in an academic milieu in which melody was almost unspeakable. And among composers as well. Um, the idea of being a tunesmith as a composer when I was in 
undergraduate or graduate school was you just did not talk in those terms. And yet what I'm saying in the book is two things, that melody is very important. It well, no, what I believe as a composer is this. I don't think music always has to have melody in the usual sense at all. All that I say is if you have a melody, it better be a good one. <laughs> and that's what I told my composition students for many years. You know, always need a melody, but just make sure that it's not baloney when it is, when you have one. When you need one, you should be able to write a good one. Mozart had that gift. It is a gift. It's a talent. Not everybody has it. He had it obviously more than Beethoven. Beethoven struggled with melody a great deal. I don't agree with Stravinsky who said that Beethoven was deficient in melody and that was his great problem and yada yada, but I still think that Beethoven struggled with melody in a way that Mozart didn't. Um, in a way certainly that Schubert didn't and, and um, various other composers. So to a degree that's a gift, but it was, it was ripened in Italy when Mozart was in Italy and that's, that was the home of melody, it was the home of opera. And that refined and intensified his, his innate, I think, gift for melody. Uh, the other word that I use a lot in the book is beauty. Talking about beauty was verboten when I was in school, and it was verboten for composers, too, because it was considered to be a bourgeois, trivial value. Um, and I Jan, believe Jan, similarly... Just pardon me a second. Wasn't that confused, though, with romantic melody? That always got to me, even back then, and I never followed it. I did never wrote uh, 12-tone music, ever, as you were imposed to do when I was at Columbia. I said, screw it. I'm going to write my music, and I've always done that. It sometimes was a little angular because I was listening to Siegmeister's going through his craziness at the time, trying to be au courant. Mm -hmm. But I never bought it, you know? I... Never, never written serial music either, and less not because I don't believe it's possible to write good serial music, but I don't think most of it's any good. In fact, almost all the serial music I, I appreciate and like was written by Schoenberg and not by a whole lot of other people. Right. I love early Webern, for example. I have no use for his serial music. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. Interesting. Um, I got tired in graduate school of what I call the petty revolutionaries all over the place. Everybody was trying to revolutionize everything and I just found it artificial and wearisome and, and, and quit thinking in those terms. But right. beauty, it took me a long time. The trouble with beauty is that it's very difficult to think about it and it's very difficult to write about it, partly because we haven't in school or anywhere else been given the tools with which to write about it and think about it. We have models for writing about music to a degree, though that's difficult too. I find it very difficult to write about music in words, ah. even though I do it all the time because I have to, that's what oh, I'm paid okay. for. But I found it even more difficult to write about beauty. And yet I believe the issue of beauty with Mozart in particular, I don't think music always has to be beautiful. I think it could be horrifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, King Lear ain't fun. And sometimes music can be horrifying. That's perfectly legitimate. But when it is meant to be beautiful, it, it, is, it is. And Mozart, sometimes I think the effect of Mozart's music is primarily simply in its extraordinary beauty. Now, Karajan used to say, he said it to Rostropovich when they were doing a rehearsal of, I think, Tchaikovsky um, variations, that... At one point, Rostropovich hit it really hard in his Rus Russian Rostropovich way. And, and Karyon, I think, said, 
you know, can you not make that more beautiful? And Rosh Hashanah says, but it's not meant to be beautiful. He says, even when it's not meant to be beautiful, it should be beautiful. Karyan said that? Yeah. Which I oh, find... that, that is the most... Do you like that statement? Oh, I do. Because I think it is po- there's a point to it. There's a point to it. I'm not saying you're going to make the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima beautiful, but it, you know, it can be made beautiful if you do something to the sound the way Stokowski would have done. It partly depends on how you define beauty, of course. Correct. And there's it, a problem. There's a creative problem with this. Yeah. I wrote a piece for cello and electronic tape. And at one point, I wanted an explosion of terror in this piece that just okay. blows the piece apart. Right. It's a roar that comes in and all the lights go out and this horrible, wild sound is roaring around. And the trouble is in the electronic studio, these were the, these were the analog days. The more I worked with that sound, the more beautiful it sounded to me. <laughs> and there is a problem from that. You know, okay. pieces that when I first heard them, like the first movement of the Bartok strings percussion in Celesta, which I, when I first heard it, I found it very difficult and off-putting harmonically, though I was fascinated by it, but it became more and more beautiful the, the more I got. So there is a problem with that, I agree. But I do, what I do think is that when we're trying to be beautiful, we should call it beauty and we should do it well. When we're trying to be horrible, horrifying, we should do, and ugly even, we should do that well, and we should, and it should be what it is. And we should not make everything beautiful because otherwise we rob ourselves of a whole expressive category. Even many if, expressive categories. I'm with you. We can't make King Lear beautiful. But some of those words. Some of the words are extraordinary. <laughs> yes. And the fact that Caliban says some of the most beautiful things. And oh, and Tempest. Tempest. No question about it. Yeah. No, listen. The great thing about Shakespeare that we must learn from, I think, and the best guys like this guy knew innately, was the, you know, light and dark, funny, sad, all together. And you can't just be dark. There's got to be lightness to shine on the dark. Well, there's another thing that I read, and this was not my idea, but it's in the book, that in the past, especially the romantic view of Mozart, tended to do, to privilege his minor key pieces, the sort of Sturm and Drawing pieces, as his most profound. D minor piano concerto. D minor piano concerto, C minor piano concerto, and so forth and so on. Don G minor symphony. Um, <laughs> and to deny happy pieces profundity. And, and the person writing this article, he was probably more of a postmodernist than I am, but still, <laughs> I thought he or she, I don't remember who it was, had a very good point that we must not just say that the dark pieces are the, are the profound ones. Some of the light and bright and beautiful ones are as well. I mean, to me, as much of a cliche as it became after the movie, the 21st piano concerto slow movement is just uncannily and, and sublimely beautiful. It is. And that's um, the El, for the people who don't remember, because we're both old guys, that's Elvira Madigan concerto. Elvira Madigan, as the as the as the record still says, it still says to sell it. <laughs> I want to. I want jump off of this in the words of Janice Swafford in Mozart: The Reign of Love, your new book. <laughs> to make a broad generalization, music needs both simplicity for coherence and expression, and complexity for depth and durability. It does not so much matter where the simplicity and complexity lie, 
Bach surface is often complex, a texture of dense counterpoint. But under the surface are simple formal outlines. Mozart's surface is often deceptively simple, but often in his finest works, such as the D minor piano concerto, the material is richly varied in shape and rhythm and expression, and this variety is managed by subtle and complex form. I love this paragraph. Now, Jan, that comes from being a composer. This is what I know from being a composer. That's right. And Jan, I have to say, I've read Tovey's works, most of them. I read a lot in Tovey over the years. I read, you know, the great poet uh, George Bernard Shaw's writings on music. I did too. Of course you have. Nobody writes like you do. Well, Shaw writes better than I do. I would claim to be one of the very best writers in English on music if it weren't for Shaw. I'm not in his league. Well, he's funny. Well, you're he's not fun as fun. he's very you're, funny. Maybe you're not as funny. <laughs> but if I'll I tell you. Viewing, I might be. But maybe so. Who knows? Maybe so. But my God, Jan, what a thing you've written here. Let's talk about music needing By the simplicity. way, it's great to hear somebody else, and especially you read them, because you read them very expressively. Well, it's, it's great to hear I, lo I love it. And I'm, I'm, you know, there's a line of the producers when they go to the director to look at the score. He says, I didn't read it. I devoured it. <laughs> so I'm, you know, you know, so I'm devouring your book like I devoured your Brahms book, like I devoured your Beethoven book, like I devoured... Your Charles Ives book. So let's talk about Charles Ives, who I know is somebody that you and I both love as a human being. I started with him as a teenager. You know how I got started on Ives? No, please tell me. These things are so random at first. I was getting interested in classical music. I was in my mid-teens. I, I may have started to compose a little bit. And I saw the old cover of the Leonard Bernstein recording of the Second Symphony, which was just one of the classic pictures of Ives, just sort of hanging in space. Right. And I simply looked at this. It was in a magazine. It was the Columbia Record Club or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I simply said, gee, I like that face. I like that name. I bet I'll like that music. And I went out and bought the first record I came across, which was Three Places in New England. <laughs> <laughs> is that Ormandy's recording? It was the old Howard Hansen Eastman oh, recording. Oh wow! Yep, and which is a classic of its of its kind. And um, put it on and said, "Oh my God!" And I simply kept listening to it until it made sense, and I liked it. And I went on from there. And I would play these things for friends, and they would tell me I was crazy. So Ives is a great hero of mine. By the time I was in high school, he was one of my heroes. But then you learned about his life which I find fascinating. Yeah. When well, I wrote my senior honors thesis on the Fourth Symphony at Harvard, and Ives was not well appreciated at Harvard in 1968. I'm shocked. But I, Is that really they, true? Leon Kirshner yeah. was there at the time? Leon Kirshner had no use for Ives. At that. Nobody did at Harvard at that time. They I still see. gave me a magna for it, to my great surprise. Because the fact is, I could already write. And I would already had a certain gift, I think, for analysis. Um, and I really, too, I think I figured that piece out pretty well. I want to stay with Ives, but I must ask you a question. I just said that I love reading your your words on music, and it's so yeah. sincere and true. Like I just read those two sections. You don't do the typical thing people do about writing about music. I don't think, 
as a composer and also published author that one can write about music so easily. No. Especially music of the of the level that you're talking about. Know. You know, you can't say, is the hardest. Yeah, it's a slippery. Yeah. Slippery is a good word. Right? Um, you cannot pin him down often emotionally. He doesn't have mm. the, the dramatic, implied dramatic narratives yeah. that Beethoven does, yeah. except maybe in the Strohendron pieces. You can talk about that. But, but even in the D minor concerto, <laughs> it goes in and out. It, it does go in and out. And then but I think there's a darkness hanging, haunting that whole piece. And I oh, think. Yeah. But. Um, you can you can find musical connections, motivic connections, and things like that. And I, but in this book, I didn't want to be that technical. And and um, I finally decided not to use musical examples. It just had to be in the writing. And I I felt ultimately defeated by it because I just you cannot. He's slippery. He's too slippery to capture in words, really. Um, and Beethoven, I realized how easy I realized how easy comparatively easy it was to write about Beethoven when I started trying to write about Mozart. And actually I went to my publications boss, Mark Mandel at Boston Symphony, and was was tearing my hair about this. And he said, I know, I know, I, you can't write about Mozart. <laughs> he said, How are you do that? <laughs> when you were writing, I said, but I have to. I, I've got to. So what do I do? I mean, it it yeah. it I would need to be more of a poet than I really am, I feel, to truly... I think I had some good... I think I got some good things in, but... but Jan, there's great melody in your writing. In some biographies, I've heard some biographers say that they read aloud what they've written to maybe a spouse or a friend to see the response. Do you read aloud what you've written? I tend to whisper it as I write. I see. I used to go back and read it aloud when I was revising. I don't do that anymore, but I, I'm very, I'm extremely aware of the sound and the rhythm, and um, and I'm very aware. In other words, I, I'm I'm aware of the music, and, and that's what you're saying. And, oh, but um, I'm hearing it, and that's why I enjoy it so much. I find it fascinating talking about writing about music, about writing about anything, but music again <clears throat> is an abstract form that we hear. So I tell my students, when you write, yes, you should use your brain, but don't rely on the brain telling you what to do, because then the writing is mechanical. Use your ear to listen to the sound, and the sound will inform you. Also, sing what you're doing. Sing it so that the lines work vocally, even if they're instrumentally being written. You'll find that the things are more flexible if you do that. The more the more I get older, the more I think of these things, of not relying on the stupid brain. Stupido io, as Tuscanini used to say. You know, this is what tells me. Now, it's different when you're writing a biography. I, that's my disagreement to one degree, which is that when you're writing history or biography, the music can mislead you. You can write yourself into things that aren't true because I've done that many times. <laughs> and that's why getting the music is harder. If you're writing poetry or, or fiction, and I've experimented with fiction, and I wrote a poem to a girl once. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, I just feel freer when I'm doing that. And I also feel, feel freer when I'm, sometimes when I'm writing a program note because I'm, I'm not burdened by mountains of material. The Beethoven, sometimes I would just sit in front of the computer for an hour 
trying to get a handle on all the elements from research that were going into a paragraph or a page. I don't have to do that when I'm writing about a program note because I'm usually writing about things I already know a lot about. Um, so I can follow the language better and I can come up with a good line once in a while. I, I have a, a note for Ives's ragtime dances. And I was talking about how funny they are and how funny Ives was as a person. His wife said she used to just kind of go off and places in the house to laugh at. <laughs> and I ended the thing by saying Charlie could do it with a word or a glance or a ragtime dance. Oh, that's beautiful. And that, um, if I ever publish my collected essays, and I hope I get a chance to, that will be the title. But that's a case where the music just came out. Um, and there's a, there's a line I've remembered for many years. He's talked, when Gunther Schuller in his book on jazz was talking about a jazz drummer. I always meant to ask him about this and never remembered. The line is he brought it off in a manner on a level with the best. Yeah. And that is a that is a jazz drum lick. And I don't know whether you do that or not. <laughs> I want to get back to Charles Ives, uh, shifting to your other book about him. Why do you and I love him so much? He is singular. He is an individual. He is a maverick. We love our mavericks. He went his own way at first because he didn't know how strange it was. And when he realized how strange it was, it shook him up and he, and he went into the insurance business so he could make a living and still do what he meant to do. It was not a straight line path by any means. No. Something that Copeland said once, I didn't take seriously when I first read it. It's one of those simple things that you realize later how profound it is. He said for to do what Ives did and do all he did without having an audience, you have to have the courage of a lion. The courage of a lion. And that's what Ives had. But it was not easy. And as he said, he had times when he was in despair and he thought his ears were on wrong. I know that. I felt it personally. I know it quite well, this feeling. And when professional musicians, famous musicians in some cases, are telling you that you're out of your mind over and over and over, it does not do good things for you. Oh, you and mean, yet, Osip he persevered. Osip Gabrilovich. Gabrilovich and the, his friend, the, the, who was actually, he played concerts with. The, the concertmaster of the New York Symphony must have been a very fine musician. They played recitals together. Yeah. I want to talk about the inflection and influence of From the Shadow of the Mountain, Adirondack Interlude, Late August, After Spring Rain, Landscape with Traveler. These are all titles of orchestral works of yours. Point Genesis Matrix, Music from the Mountain. Now, what do I notice about those titles? <laughs> Well, you notice that I'm an old hiker, is what you notice. And that, that religion, that my, to the degree I have a religion, it's nature. Um, so that's been the main inspiration. It also came, it, it began to come in a way when a friend of mine, John Himmelfarb, started doing in college, he's a painter, artist, Drawings based on nature, which were enormously complex and, and based on tech and creating texture. And I began to realize that that's the texture of nature and how complex that texture was. And I began to think of my music in terms of those kind of textures. 
But, and for a while that meant I wrote a very great many notes on the page. Mm. Because I, I had an experience once hiking. I was hiking in autumn in Vermont, backpacking. I'd been out for a couple of days. And I walked around a corner on the trail and was faced by this incredible hillside, an absolute primo autumn, multicolored Vermont autumn hillside that just took your breath away with the complexity of it. And, and, and um, my piece, um, mountain music, no, my, the orchestra piece, um, Landscape with Traveler, I really tried to duplicate that moment in sound and I didn't succeed. But there was a moment when I tried to, I tried to get that effect of multiple colors in the, in the orchestra at the same time. But Jan, isn't it funny? Sometimes when one has this thought that I'm going to go there, but then some other thought comes in and dominates the conversation. And okay. you never expected to get that. I th <clears throat> you know, I thought I was going there, but oh my God, this came. And it, this came seems much more right than what I thought using the old brain might be the way. And that's why this guy is to me very interesting because sometimes he'll go off on a tangent, perhaps. Are you talking about Ives again? Mozart. Ah, no. uh, okay. He'll go on a yes. tangent and then you say, where's he going? And, you know, couldn't he have gone there like a Salieri might have or even Haydn? but he doesn't. And that gives him a color that I find to be miraculous and fresh. Yes. I, and the way I've put that, which is the same thing in another way, I just, he has this extraordinary continuity in his music and he has an ability to go from anywhere to any place else seemingly with ease, which is not easy to do, as you know, as a composer. It isn't. And I, one of his Ways he did that, though, I learned of all people, though I'm sure it wasn't an original thought with him, from Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who in an interview pointed out that Mozart will tend to increase the speed of the rhythmic speed toward the end of the phrase, creating Imagine more energy it goes to the end of the phrase, which then carries over into the next phrase. You, this is in your book, In the Reign of Love. Yes. And that's something I learned from Stockhausen, though I, I imagine he learned it from somebody else. But it's mostly true, I think. That's a very good comment. And, and that's, that's part of his extraordinary continuity. And, you know, continuity is very difficult. You know that. And we, if we're not writing standard harmony, I don't know if you do, but I mostly don't, um, you, you get so involved in, in the trying to shape the sounds and have the sounds make sense that it's very hard to get a, a sense of the overall continuity the way Beethoven could doing sketches in one line, mm. continuity sketches, so he could get the flow. He was hearing the whole piece in that one line, but he could get the flow, and he had to, didn't have to worry about the harmony all that much. I can't do that because I'm writing constantly new harmony. So uh, I look at Mozart and his ability to, to go from, from one idea, to leap from one idea to another, leap from one rhythmic situation to another. Uh, everybody else, I think, even the same period seems almost crude compared to him. I think sometimes Beethoven in that respect seems almost crude compared to Mozart. To end this wonderful conversation, I must talk to you about something. I spoke to a composer in his 90s, a well-known composer who's written also texts on music writing. And he is worried at his age that although he has written a large amount of music, the only thing he's going to be remembered for is his uh, 
a book on music, not his music. What I don't them? worry about that. Okay, but Do let you? me. Well, as a composer, absolutely. So, but, so I have a question. Absolutely. Well, there's me, the internet, so our music is never going to die. Well, recordings are really important, and I, yes, I am on are. a I am on a quest to record as much as possible or yep. get it get it recorded. But let me just and mention, then the future can sort it out. I can't deal with it. I do have kids and grandkids, thank God. But <laughs> the point of the matter is as follows: Why certain music lasting? And certain music not. What makes a piece last? Well, if I knew that, I would be a much better composer and or much more famous one. I don't know. Um, I wish, I deeply wish there was some kind of objective criteria to judge art because I think mostly there isn't. I think you can judge you can't even, there's no way to judge anything anymore. When, you, when we're in a situation where anything goes, where you can scrawl a political slogan on a, with a crayon and a childlike way on the side of a box and get into a major museum, because I've seen that in a major museum. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is much, much harder, and therefore it's much harder for all kinds of nonsense to get through the door, both in artistic terms and in academic terms and in critical terms and all these terms there since there there seems to be no criteria of judgment left other than success mm. in effect um and in which in academe you no longer have to you can you can make a very good academic career attacking your art now um and tearing it down in favor of one other you know one agenda or another uh, tearing down the past, and and you can do very well doing that and get paid quite well. Um, but it's a very small your, your audience. There's minuscule. I'm talking about. I've noticed as a composer that the reality of musical world, which yeah, has nothing to do with yeah. academia. Also, also show fortunately, business, show business too. We're talking and show about, business. We're talking about I know, the rate. I know. Rate, I don't. Do you have any love. theories? Do you have your theories about that? Because I, do, I don't but, really. Well, I do. I, I do think know. that there are some objective criteria why, um, you know, Street Fighting Man, a tune I like by the Stones, is not as profound as the G minor symphony. I think there are some objective reasons for that. Yeah, there are. Having to do with richness and complexity and, and things like that. Um, I, I, I want to interrupt by telling you that the richness and complexity, the simplicity and the difficulty of life have been explained so beautifully by you today. I tell our, watch, our, our readers and the people who listen to this and watch this that they must go out and buy your books and listen to your music because I find them to be thrilling. Jan Swafford extraordinary composer and writer. Thank you so much for being on Interplay. Thank you, Michael. It's lovely to talk to a composer, too, in one of these things. That's new for me. Well, I'm happy to do it. This is Michael Shapiro, your host on Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.